I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. So if you have a copy, you can turn there. Otherwise, the words should be on the screen and they are in the printed for you in the bulletin. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of this chapter. Remember that as we get back into the Gospel of John for the next 12-ish weeks, that we're thinking about the theme that we've been thinking about this whole year, and that is life with Jesus. Life with Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is it? That's what we're thinking about this whole year together, life with Jesus. So listen to these words as I read them. John 13, verses 1 through 20. This is the Word of God. You can bank your entire life on it. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put out on his outer garments and, and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me a teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for giving us these stories that happened in real time and space that happened in this world, that are actual events. For they remind us that you are oftentimes much bigger than what we could imagine. That your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. And oftentimes we are simply confused regarding who you really are. So we thank you for giving us these stories. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our lives to the truth of what is here, that you would change us, make us more like Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus. 
Amen. You all heard the term bucket list? Heard that before? What does that mean? Those of you that have heard that before, what is, what is a bucket list? Yes, I am looking for an answer. Ricky. Things you want to do before you die. Does that sound familiar? You all have a bucket list? Yeah? Anybody willing to share what's something that's on your bucket list? What's something you'd like to do before you die? Play Augusta National. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anybody else? 2.7 seconds? Think you can make 2.7 seconds? Yes. Might be able to do that. Ride a bull named Fu Manchu. You and Tim McGraw got something in common. Amazing. Anybody else? Oftentimes when you read about what people put on their bucket list or want on their bucket list or want to do, it's, it's things like learning a new language, starting a new business, um, all kinds of things that people love to do. Travel. I would love, love to travel uh, in particular places um, of the world. I'd love to go to Europe more in Scotland before I die. I'd love to do that. Uh, we had a little family discussion about this the other day, and it was brought up in my family that one of the things on our bucket list would be just to be organized. Before we die, could it just happen? Before we die, can we just get organized? Does that resonate a little bit? Um, my youngest said that she would, on her bucket list, she would love to have a grocery store in her backyard. And we said, Bergen, that's farming. You want to be a farmer. <laughs> and we got a big kick out of that. Remember, as we look at the Gospel of John, chapter 12 through 21, it's telling us about seven days. And we're spending 13 weeks thinking about seven days. Well, that time frame gets even shorter here as we begin chapter 13. If you look and go back and read chapters 13 through 17, what you find out is that it's actually covering, those chapters are actually covering one 24-hour period. Which means what we're looking at together in chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' bucket list. These are the things that he wanted to do before he died. He could have done anything in the world. Anything. And this is what he wanted to do before he died. We get the first installment here in chapter 13 in the verses I read. Here are the two points we're going to look at this morning. If you'd like to take notes, if, it, if you'd like to organize things, here are the two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at, at, at excuse me, analyzing the data the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to try to analyze these verses and think through the when this happened and what happened and why. And then we're going to look at the so what. So what? And hopefully what we'll do with that is, if it didn't happen until that point, bring all this into our own lives. So let's analyze the data together. Let's think about when this happened. When did this event take place? Well, let's just start at an easy spot. This happened on Thursday night. Scholars think April 2nd, year 33. That makes it kind of tangible and living, doesn't it? April 2nd, the year 33, at night, on a Thursday. Wow. This is real stuff. Look at verse 2. It tells you something else about when this happened. This happened when the devil had entered into Jesus so that Excuse me, the devil had entered into Judas. Did you catch that? 
Okay, good. Glad you're awake. That was completely on purpose. Just kidding. The devil entered into Judas that he would betray Jesus. That's what verse 2 tells you. Then there's something else. Look at verse 1. When his hour had come, he knew, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now that's just as a sidebar, John's little tag phrase, summary, brief way to compartmentalize. When Jesus says, when John says that Jesus knew his hour had come, he's referring to the fact that Jesus knew it was time for him to die. That's what that means. Jesus knew that he had entered into Jerusalem in order to give up his life. He knew he was going to die. Bucket list, because he knew he was going to die. Now, if that freaks you out, if that immediately makes you sad, just let me say on the front end, don't impose your view of death on Jesus. Let him tell you why he's dying. Let him tell you about his excitement about dying. Let him show you how hard it was going to be and yet how much he really wanted to do it. When else did this take place? Not only did Jesus know it was time to die, not only when it was after the devil had entered Judas, not only was it on a Thursday, this was the point. We can summarize it this way. This was the point of no, this was the point of no return. Jesus would never come back from this the same. Let's think about the what together. Obviously, what does Jesus do when you read this? Not a trick question. What does he do? He washes feet. He washes feet. He puts on an outer garment. He bends down and he begins to wash feet. Think about that. This is the being that placed the stars in the heavens. This is the one that spoke and things began to exist. Nothing was made that was made without Jesus. And here he is in the, with the same hands that put things in the, in the heavenly places. The same hands are now bending down and removing fecal matter and dust and dirt and mud from in between toes. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? This is Jesus. This is the God-man. This is extraordinary. We would never have imagined that God in the flesh would do something like this. This would be, this, this would be as shocking and perhaps, well, this would be as shocking as if our president were to muck out the spot pots after the ECU game last night. Something we would never think could possibly happen, ever. Here you have Jesus washing feet. God in the flesh cleaning out dung, mud. Why did he do this? Look at the text. Bunch of reasons. We'll start here. 
If you go back and read verses 14 and 15 and verse 17, what you find is that Jesus did this so that we would imitate him. Listen, this is what he says. If I then, your Lord and teacher, verse 14, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Why did Jesus do this? Because he's giving us a pattern that we are supposed to follow. Our lives are supposed to take the shape and follow the pattern and the shape of Jesus' life. What Jesus does as his followers, we are supposed to do. We are to have the same mentality as Christ, who became a servant. So in reading this, one of the reasons why is so that we will do likewise. Here's another reason. Look at verse 3. Jesus did this because he knew that all things were in his hands. He knew that God, that he had come from God and he was going to go back to God. He knew that everything belonged to him. This gives you a little insight into his mind a little insight into his heart. He knew that God had given him everything. He looked at everything he was doing and all he could think about was God's plan. All he could think about is what he had come to do. All he could think about was glorifying God. All he could think about is ultimately reuniting everything in heaven and on earth. All he could think about is that he owns everything. All he could think about said everything belongs to him. It's amazing to think about that too. How many times do I forget that all that I have and all that I do and all that I'm supposed to do is for God? How easy is, for, is it for me to forget that? Here's Jesus thinking about God, thinking about the fact he had come from God and he was going to return to him. He was thinking about the destiny of the entire universe. Here's another reason why Jesus did this. Look at verse 8. Now, we'll get into Peter's response in a minute. But look what Jesus says in verse 8. If I don't do this, you have no share or no part with me. In other words, there's something on the line here. If Jesus doesn't do this then there is no relationship between us and him. If Jesus doesn't wash the disciples' feet, then a saving relationship doesn't exist. We can't be a follower of Jesus unless he washes feet. You take that in? It's telling us something profound about a relationship with God. It's telling us something profound about our relationship with Jesus and about his relationship to us. If he doesn't do this, the relationship doesn't exist. Here's the last reason why Jesus did this. For love. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The reason why 
He washed feet is because of love. He loved his disciples. He loved those who were in the world. He came to pursue. He came to initiate. Here he is loving his people. And it says he loved them to the end. And that's not talking about chronology. It's talking about to the fullest expression possible. He's talking about to the zenith of what love actually means. He's talking about the pinnacle of love. And this should pierce all of our hearts and confound our minds. Because do you actually think you are easy to love? When you look in the mirror, when you actually take time and reflect on your own life and your own motives and the, the reason why you do things and what you do, do you think you're an easy person to love? Newsflash, Jesus doesn't either. And he loved us to the fullest expression. Jesus' love is not blind. Jesus' love is costly. Jesus' love cost him his own life. He was willing to be spit upon and whipped. He was willing to be stripped down and hung up on a tree for love. Not because we're easy to love, but because he loves. And he loves Those that are hard to love. He loves people like us. People like you. People like me. When you read back through this, substitute your name in there. Having loved Dave who is in the world, he loved Dave to the end. Personalize that. Spend some time thinking about that. Put yourself in this. If you're a follower of Christ, put yourself in this to be refreshed with what Jesus has done. And if you're wondering about Christianity, you're wondering what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus, if you're skeptical, put your name in there and think about that. Fill in that blank and wrestle with that. That the God-man would love you in that way. That he would die for you. Wrestle with that. Even though you may have a thousand other questions and they may be completely legitimate. You still got to wrestle with this. You still got to wrestle with this kind of love. Because you'll never find it anywhere else. You won't find any other religion. You won't find any other philosophy. It's like this. Jesus did this for love. Well, now let's think about the so what. Why does all this matter? Let's try to bring all of this into our lives, perhaps in new ways or deeper ways than what we've just been talking about. So what? Well, let's look at Peter's reaction and Jesus' response. Jesus 
puts on the outer garment, bends down, begins to pour water on disciples' feet, and he begins to wash and wipe. He begins to take that towel off and begin to clean the feet and pour on more water so that those feet are clean and they don't stink anymore. And Jesus gets to Peter. Now, we spent a lot of time on Peter, so perhaps you remember this. And if you look in verse 6 and verse 8, you get Peter's reaction. Jesus begins to wash Peter's feet, and Peter instinctively says, What are you doing? Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. You look at verse 8, it's even stronger. You should never wash my feet. Doesn't that make sense in a way? I mean, think about it. This is God in the flesh. And he's washing your feet? Shouldn't we be the ones who are washing his feet? I mean, here's the guy who's going to die. This is the guy who came into Jerusalem declaring that he was king that we looked at last week. Declaring that he is a servant king. Knowing that he was going to give his life. And what's on his mind? Man, my disciples' feet, they stink and they're dirty. And no one else is washing. I need to do this. And Peter says, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. Doesn't that make sense a little bit to you? Maybe there's a little bit of guilt with Peter. Maybe there's a little bit of shame. Maybe he was thinking, you know what? I should be doing this. Makes sense. Perhaps we have thought the same way. And then God, Jesus says to him in verse 8, look, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. You have no share with me. And then look at what Peter says in verse 9. Was it verse 9 or 10? Yes, 9. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> you know, he errs he on one side and, and then he ends up going too far on the other. At first he's like, no, Jesus, don't touch my feet. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, start at the top and go all the way down. Start at the bottom and go all the way up. Jesus, get it all. Do everything. See, he misses it on both sides, doesn't he? And perhaps it makes sense. Perhaps that's how we oftentimes relate to Christ. Perhaps that's oftentimes how we relate to God. You know, we're so far on one side, and then we go so far on the other side that God is always trying to bring us back to the middle. He's trying to help clarify what our lives should be like and what he's done and what he's continuing to do. That's why Jesus' response is so profound. He's bringing Peter, he's bringing me, he's bringing you, he's bringing us back to truth. Because on the one hand, what Peter does kind of makes sense. But it's just his reaction. And Jesus says, no, Peter, think about it this way. Look at what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus makes this distinction between being bathed and washing. In a nutshell, he's saying what it means to be bathed, or what we might say showered, is that someone is righteous. 
They are forgiven. They have a new heart. They have a status with God that is God declaring someone righteous. The big term for that, the big theological idea for that, is justification. God saying, Peter, you are made new. You have been made new. You are washed. You have been washed. You are righteous before God. What God has done is he has said you're forgiven and you're righteous. And Peter, you have that. But there's something else. You still need ongoing, continual washing. You still need ongoing cleaning. We call this sanctification. That's what the Bible talks about with that idea of sanctification, where we continually need to be cleaned up, where we need to continue to change, where we need to look more like what we are in Christ, where the righteousness that God has declared looks more evident in our lives. You see, it's not that we just get cleaned up and hopefully we get cleaned up enough to where God accepts us. It's that God started everything by declaring us righteous and forgiven and we receive that by faith and then our faith is active and we live it out and we look more and more like Jesus. When I was in seminary, I went two years, I took a year off and went two more. And then that year that I took off, I worked at a glue factory, and I also worked at a church in Greenville, South Carolina. And my days looked an awful lot like getting up at about 4.30 in the morning and clocking in at 4.45, working until mid-afternoon at the glue factory, left, leave, then I would leave the glue factory and go to the church and carry out my duties until the evening, and then repeat, did that for a year. And to try to illustrate this for you, think about it in this way. When I worked at the glue factory, let me tell you, I would get dirty, filthy. I would take extra clothes to work every day because I would sweat through my clothes multiple times. And sometimes it was so bad I just had change shirts, you know. And then I would leave and go to the church and to work. Now, here are my options. I could take a shower and put my dirty glue clothes back on. Or I could not shower and put clean clothes on. Do either of those make me presentable? Not really. Because let me tell you, there wasn't much that could cover up that stink. <laughs> my clothes were never clean enough in order to keep that stench and glue stuff. I had to take a shower and get clean, and then I had to put on clean clothes. Jesus is saying, that is the gospel. What I do is I make you clean, and then I give you a brand new way to live so that your life looks like me. And it's not, the gospel is not, if I just look good enough and follow God earnestly enough, then he'll accept me. Jesus is saying, no, that's not it at all. I clean you. I wash you. I do it all. And you are supposed to receive me 
and then live out that faith while I'm continuing to clean you and wash you, while I'm continuing to make you more and more like what you say you are because of what I have done. Why does Peter react this way? Why do we react this way? Why does it make sense to us that, that Peter would say, no, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this, and then all of a sudden on the other side, oh, do it all, Jesus. Why does that, why do we react that way too? It's because of this. Grace threatens all of us. Grace threatens us at a very, very deep level. Grace is profoundly intimidating because it strips us of all of our pride. It strips us of the deep desire we have to be self-made. There's hardly any of us that would not like a little Jesus in our lives, just as long as we can kind of use him a little bit, as long as we remain self-made, as long as we can ultimately take credit for everything that happens. And grace is a threat to that. Grace is intimidating because it says, no, you will never clean yourself up. You can't make yourself ready. Grace strips us of everything that we want to cling on to so we can boast in ourselves. Grace says, no, you can't. Even the faith that you have is a gift. You see, maybe I can say it this way. All of us want a God whose feet we can wash. We want Jesus to do a little bit, and then we just get busy washing his feet, thinking this is the way that I'm going to stay in good favor. This is the way that I'm going to get better status, greater status. We all want a God whose feet we can wash. Because at rock bottom, we're really interested in power and control. We're really interested in defining our own self-image. And Jesus says no. If there's any of you out there who are wondering, or you know people who are wondering, where is God? I can't find him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering that, wrestling with, I don't know where God is. Maybe you know friends, coworkers, family, friends that are constantly thinking about, where is God? Well, I read this a little while ago, and it really helped me. This is what one guy said. Maybe the reason we're struggling to find God is because we're looking in the wrong place. Maybe we're always trying to look too high. And maybe we need to start looking lower. Maybe we realize and need to realize that Jesus is actually at our feet. Maybe we need to realize that Jesus has come to serve, to redeem to save us from ourselves. He's not an add-on to our lives. You see, Jesus is doing something in these verses that all the disciples thought was beneath him. Jesus was doing something here that all the disciples thought were beneath them. So I leave you with this. If you want to take this and wrestle and bring this truth into your heart, 
I would suggest thinking about this. Ask God to help you answer these. What is it that's beneath you? What is it that's beneath you? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Is it an ideology? What is it that's beneath you that you think you would never do? And the other suggestion I have, you ask God to work this in your life. Figure out where you are fighting grace. Where you're still trying to do everything on your own. At the end of the day, you're still wanting to take credit and boast in self. And then this. Where does Jesus need to serve you? Where is he serving you? Where is he continuing to show you how much he loves you? Where he's exposing your pride? Where is he serving you? Has it been a long time since he served you? You see, life with Jesus looks like this. No one is beneath us because we were not beneath Jesus. He was willing to serve and save us. And that affects how we view and look and live out everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord and giver of life. That apart from you, we have no good thing. Our flesh, our heart fail. But you are the strength of our lives. And you are our inheritance, our portion forever. Jesus, would you work into us? By confronting us with grace, would you work into us deeper love and faith and hope? We pray this for your glory. Amen.